Well, good evening. Welcome to our third week in our series on Revelation. This is a 10-week series, so you still have seven weeks before the world ends. Just want you to enjoy that time. Seriously, I know people are still coming in here, and of course, our friends in Edmond, and then just out on the web uh, watching this, so just very casual, just come in. Those of you watching at home, just get up, get a sandwich, whatever you'd like to do, we're fine. Let me say a prayer for us, and we're going to dive into uh, really exciting stuff in this lesson. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this revelation, for revealing to us your will for this world and your purpose in human history. I pray that as we reason together and we study, that you would continually draw us closer to you. We thank you for your grace, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Amen. I do have one public service announcement uh, before we get started. This Sunday, here at the Oklahoma City campus, here in uh, the atrium, which is right outside this room, we're going to have a two-hour from 7 to 9 p.m., uh, kind of a, it's not exactly a class on faith and science, what it's going to be is kind of a, a lecture, a little bit of a lecture to kind of tee up some really fascinating ideas about the interaction between faith and science. And Cole Fakes has recruited a really good panel of people to answer questions. I think it'll be a great evening of some dialogue. So 7 to 9 p.m. this Sunday here at Crossings Oklahoma City campus. If you'd like to join us for that, We'd love to have you. It'll be a really interesting dialogue and hopefully stimulate our thinking a little bit. So faith and science this Sunday. Well, as you probably know by now, if you will text questions to this number, it's also on your handout. During class, we try to answer as many as we can. Laura, you're holding up the mic like you already have a question. She already has a question. Some of you are really overachievers on these questions. It's like, in fact, you're kind of prophetic. I mean, can you really ask a question about what we're going to talk about? Okay, so uh, I'm going to pause and say, do we have a question? Yes, we have some of the same questions we got last week. <laughs> we have some of the same questions. Would, would it by chance have anything to do with that interesting little prophecy in Thessalonians about... Uh, the rap well, potentially the rapture, if, if you believe in that that is indeed the rapture, about people dying and like, do you go right to heaven when you die or not? Yes, and someone wants to know what is meant by soul sleep. Soul sleep. Okay, well, that's a great segue into, now, this was not part of our lesson, but you caught it. And so when we were talking about the idea of a rapture, and we talked about the, the disagreement about the rapture is basically, basic, I'm painting with a broad brush, but basically this, is a rapture, a, you know, Christians going to heaven and then bad stuff happens, and then Jesus comes at the second coming and everybody goes to judgment. So is the rapture and the second coming of Christ, are those two different things? Some say yes, meaning they believe in a rapture, typically before the tribulation starts, we'll talk about that in a minute, pre-tribulation rapture. Other people say, no, the rapture and the second coming are the same event. So that's essentially this agreement. But when we looked at that passage, it talked about that when Christ came, the dead in Christ would, would rise. In other words, people who are Christians who have died would raise from the dead, which led you smart people to go, hey, wait a minute. What happens to you when you die? If you are a Christian, if, if, you know, if God, does God judge you and then the moment you die, your soul goes to heaven? If so, how are we doing this rapture thing later, right? So then you realized, wait a minute, what if you, when you die, you wait until the rapture happens or the second coming of Christ and then you go to heaven? That second idea is called soul sleep. It's just a name. It's not a biblical name. It's just a name. And basically, it's a good name, though. What it, basically, there are two points of view amongst Christians. First of all, that passage in Thessalonians seems to imply that when you die, you, quote, sleep, meaning no time passes for you. The next thing you know is you open your eyes and here's heaven. Here's judgment day, whatever. 
but that a lot of time might have passed, and so your soul has been asleep. It's just a metaphor. So soul sleep is when you die, you wait till the second coming. Other points of view, which the Bible also kind of talks about it this way too, both of these are reasonable things to think, is that when you die, you immediately go to heaven. At that moment, well, that has some difficulties with it. That means God's kind of judging you. I've never heard anybody say, hey, I wonder if old Fred went straight to hell when he died, or if he had to wait for the resurrection. If your name's Fred, that was purely a random statement. I mean, I made that up, okay? Yeah, there are 42 Freds here. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. So there are two, to give you the short version of the story, there are two basic schools of thought. Go straight to heaven when you die. You go to sleep, meaning no time passes for you. I mean, you die, the next thing you know, you open your eyes and there's heaven. So Christians disagree about that. At the end of the day, it really, you end up in exactly the same disposition before Christ, your Savior, and you know of no difference. So it's typically not an argument that's been a big, big deal to people, but there are those two points of view. So that's kind of a cursory covering of that subject, but hopefully that satisfies you, and hopefully you won't see anything like that in any of the other passages that we do tonight. Now, seriously, I admire your, your attention to detail. Well, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about each week we've talked a little bit is I want you to get a feel for what is happening in the book of Revelation that Jesus chose this time in the first century, the end of the first century AD, to reveal this. And the fact that as we talk about these things, you realize, hey, wait a minute, this is still very similar to that situation. So, for example, we talked in the first lesson about economic persecution. Christians were persecuted economically even more widely than they were persecuted physically, although both certainly happened. I don't know if you've thought about that, but in our culture, we're getting perilously close to that sort of thing. In our last lesson, read this fascinating letter to you from a Roman governor in really close to where these churches are, about 16 years after Revelation was written, writing to the Emperor Hadrian, talking about how he's having to kill a lot of these Christians. Uh, and so you begin to realize, wow, I hope it sinks in that we're seeing historical sources from that time corroborating the fact that, wow, the government really was persecuting Christians economically and, and physically. So in this lesson, uh, I'll, I'll try to do this quickly, but it's a powerful story. I want to tell you the story of a guy named uh, Polycarp. Polycarp, weird name I know, but he was the Bishop of Smyrna. Now you're thinking, where is Smyrna? You'll see the map of Asia, modern-day Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. Smyrna is one of the seven churches that got a letter at the beginning of this. Well, that letter was written, for, for our purposes, I'm going to call it about 95 AD. Well, Polycarp was alive in that time period. He was a Christian in that time period, and according to church tradition, he studied under the Apostle John. I mean, he heard the Apostle John speak. He went on to become the Bishop of Smyrna. In those days, that basically meant he was kind of the leading senior elderly figure of the church in that area. He was probably a preacher, teacher as well. Well, about uh, when he was about 86 years old, he came under this persecution in about 156 AD. So I realize this is a little bit later, but I want you to hear kind of firsthand from a document that's written right about 156 AD. It's uh, called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. So for 1,800 years, this document has come down to us, and it tells the story of what happened to this 86-year-old Christian man. And I want you to get a feel for the reality of what's going on with the Christians. So in speaking about... Polycarp and others who were being brought before the Roman uh, government, they said those who were condemned to the wild beast, remember about throwing Christians to the beast? Absolutely routine. They would throw them into the arena with starved beasts for entertainment. That was their method of punishment. So they were forced to lie on sharp shells, afflicted with all kinds of torture, so that if possible, by punishing them severely enough, they might compel them to deny their faith for the devil tried many things against them. Well, Polycarp, they came for him, knowing he was an important figure, and, and so they, uh, he could have escaped, but he chose not to. 
So they came to him and they took him before the Roman uh, proconsul. And on the way, they began to try to talk him out of it. They basically said to him, Polycarp, you're an old man. I'll read you uh, just a little bit of uh, what they're saying to him. He said, listen, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering some incense and doing some other things? And you will save your life, old man. He said, you're, you're too old for this. Nobody really wants to kill you. He said, so just deny that. And Polycarp says, you know, you guys just need to get on with this because I'm not about to do what you're suggesting to me. He said, there's no way in the world that I'm going to deny my Lord. And so uh, they took him before the proconsul. The proconsul brings him in. He's in the proconsul, is in the middle of the arena now. They've taken him into the arena. The proconsul, Roman proconsul's talking to him and said, are you Polycarp? And he said, yes, that I am. And he said, listen, have respect for your age, old man. He said, just swear by the genius of Caesar. And that's a kind of a technical term, but it's sort of, if you don't want to say Caesar is Lord, just say this instead, and then condemn the atheists. You see, in those days, Christians were thought of as atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in any of those Roman and Greek gods. And they said, you just believe in one God? You're obviously an atheist. You don't believe in the gods. And so he said, just condemn atheism and say Caesar you know, is Lord. And so they persisted and persisted. He said, swear the oath and deny Christ, and I will just let you go. And Polycarp says, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So then the proconsul starts to threaten him. And the proconsul says, listen, he said, these people want you killed. I can throw you to the wild beasts, and I'm going to throw you to the wild beast. Do you understand, old man, unless you deny Christ? And Polycarp says, well, bring them on. He said, I'm ready to die. I'm not going to deny Christ. You might as well bring the, bring the animals out here. Well, the proconsul gets frustrated. He's like, great. He said, fine, I'll tell you what, we'll do something even more painful. Since you have no fear of the beasts, I will have you consumed by fire unless you deny Christ. We will burn you alive at the stake. And so Polycarp says, I got a match. Bring, bring it on. And so the proconsul tells everybody, he said, Polycarp has admitted that he is a Christian. And so the Gentiles and the Jews living in Smyrna cried out in uncontrollable anger with a loud shout, this is the teacher of Asia, of all of Turkey, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches so many people not to sacrifice or worship our gods. And then it occurred to them, they could all shout out in unison that Polycarp should be burned alive. And so the proconsul said, so be it. The crowd swiftly went out and collected wood and kindling from all the workshops around there, the Jews being especially eager to assist in this, as was their custom. And so they typically nailed people to the stake when they set them on fire because the pain was so unendurable, they would literally run, they would leap out of it. And he said, you know, you don't need to nail me there because I'm not going to jump out. You can just tie my hands and that'll be fine. So they just tied his hands. He said, do you mind if I say a prayer? So he said a prayer. Took about an hour. But he <laughs> <laughs> a long prayer, you know. It said that he, he basically remembered in his prayer everyone he had ever met. So he, he had this long, long prayer. And at the end of the day, they light the fire and they burn him alive. And I, I just, this is... This is the account of that incident that happened by an eyewitness. So I just want you to get a feeling for what's happening in this environment. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the book of Revelation has huge implications for us, huge life application for us. And I, I want you to get a feeling for if, if the book of Revelation, if what Jesus has to say in this book can get Christians through that, then I'm pretty sure that my faith, he can get me through everything in front of me. And so I find that very encouraging. That's why Christians have read the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. Not because maybe this is something that's going to happen seven years in the future. And that may be true. But the book of Revelation, its value to the Christian church has never been, it's predicting the end of the world. So I really want to put it in that context for you that whether or not you have an agreement about when the end of the world is going to happen and decipher Revelation... 
That's not a bad thing to study the word, but the value of it is far more than predicting when the world will end. And that's what we're gonna focus on. So I've taken too much time with that, so I'm gonna kind of blitz through our recap. You're gonna get tired of these four views, and I'll, but you're gonna know them. When we're through, this is gonna make a lot of sense. Chapters four through 19, called the tribulation. The time, uh, it's called the tribulation, but that word means trials, difficulties, uh, bad stuff happening. And so that chapters four through 19 talk about this time period of the tribulation. The big difference amongst Christians in interpreting this is when will it happen? Preterists say these visions, these events in chapters four through 19 happened at the fall of Jerusalem or maybe at the fall of the Roman Empire, but they, they're talking about past events. Historicist says this is actually, chapters four through 19 is sort of a secret coded roadmap between for the church age, the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. We're in the middle of this thing somewhere. Futurists say the tribulation, chapters four through 19, are all gonna happen in a seven year time period in the future. And if world politics have anything to say about it, probably pretty soon. Then Symbolic says, these visions aren't intended to tell you the exact things that happened before the end of the world. They're telling you things that have happened over and over and over, like the persecution of Christians in the first century. Christians have been persecuted more and more times throughout history. So Symbolic says, these are enduring truths that happen over and over. Well, in our chapters today, chapter six and seven, we saw that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was the only one worthy to open this scroll, and the scroll was sealed with seven seals. We're gonna see seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath being poured out. They're gonna be three sets of seven, and that should send every alarm bell in your mind going off like, hey, that is not a random set of numbers, and it's not. We'll talk about it. But how do people, how do these different views see these seven seals? Because we're gonna start opening these seals and things are gonna start happening. The preterist says these seven seals and the events that happen are sequential things that happened back at the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of the Roman Empire. Historicists say these are indeed sequential events that are happening in the past, the present, and some of them haven't happened yet. In other words, it's a roadmap to history. Futurists say these are sequential, specific events that are gonna happen in the world in geopolitical, military reality in a seven-year period. And the seven seals start it. Symbolic says these are not necessarily sequential. They're non-specific events. In other words, they don't, uh, let me give you, the symbolic's gonna have this point of view. You basically have literary parallelism. I'm gonna tell you the same story three times. I'm gonna open seven seals, I'm gonna blow seven trumpets, and I'm gonna pour out seven bowls of wrath. It's a beautiful literary structure. This is a symbolic view, because that's the one most people have a hard time understanding. Does symbolic view think this isn't true? Not at all. Symbolic believes this is true, just believe it's true in a different way. It's trying to say something different believe that you have this parallelism. Second thing Symbolic thinks is that you have what's called recapitulation, meaning I'm gonna tell you this story, I'm gonna tell you this story, I'm gonna tell you this story. A lot like what my children accuse me of doing. Uh, more and more lately, it's like, Dad, we've heard that story three times, and I just say, it's prophetic recapitulation, kids. I know what I'm doing here. But basically, Symbolic says you're gonna see these sets of seven. Seven is the perfect number. You're gonna see God's judgment, his complete and perfect judgment. Oh, and by the way, I'm gonna tell you three times. I'm gonna tell you one other uh, significance of the number three. The number three is a divine number. Four, the number of creation, put them together, you get everything. But there'll be occasions when you're gonna see something repeated three times. Remember the song that they were singing in heaven in our last lesson, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Hebrew, there are no uh, comparative adjectives. Like we would say, holy, holier, holiest. Well, they don't have that. And so to say holiest, you just repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy. What is that saying? When you read that in the Psalms or anything like that, they're saying, God, you are the holiest thing we can think of. And that's just how they express it. So you get 
777. You get God's complete judgment and his complete judgment and his complete judgment. Whoa, that is emphasizing this is the ultimate in God's judgment. Okay, That's kind of a symbolic view. So Hopefully that makes sense. We'll kind of look at it some more as we go through it. Well, let's uh, get into our text. Let's start opening these seals. Chapter 6, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures, remember those weird-looking four creatures, say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red horse. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Well, let me pause there. You're going to see four horsemen as we undo the first four seals. By the way, and this is the way it's going to be, Just it's going to have this same literary structure. You're going to do four things, then you're going to do two things, then you're going to do one thing. But the four things that happen are going to affect things on this earth, right? Four is the number of created. And so these four things that happen each time are going to affect creation. So you're going to see four horses. The first horse, who is this? I mean, what does this mean that there's a white horse, rider held a bow, given a crown, rode out as a conqueror, and begins to uh, conquer things? Well, if you're a preterist, you think that this is the Roman army coming to destroy Jerusalem in about 66 AD. Makes sense, right? You're thinking this is symbolic of that event because chapter 4 through 19 is talking about that event. If you're a historicist, you think this is a period in the Roman Empire, and it's just going to move right through history. Domitian, bad guy, died in 96 AD. Marcus Aurelius, not so bad a guy, uh, died in 180 AD. They're going to say that this writer represents that time period. Why? Because it was a golden age of conquest for the Roman Empire. And so I'm hoping that this, uh, this makes some sense. A historian is going to say that event has to somehow be talking about a piece of history and just move it right on through. And then a futurist who says, you guys are nuts. This is all going to happen in the future. That's the Antichrist coming on the scene. He's going to come out and begin conquering the world and amassing this world government. More on him later. Second horse, he comes out and he's given the power to start wars. Just all kinds of wars are happening. Well, historicists say that's going to be the Emperor Commodus in 180 AD. There's going to march right through history. It's going to go all the way to uh, the Emperor uh, Diocletian in 284. The reason for that is that was a time of great civil war in the Roman Empire. And so they see this guy. This is the secret coded map to take us through history. Futurist says this is Russia and its Arab allies starting a war with Israel. Okay, so you have the Antichrist as the first writer. He gets out, he stirs things up, and very specifically, a future says at some point, Russia and its Arab allies are going to start a war with Israel. I know what you're thinking. You're like, whoa, if I were a futurist... I'd be buying gold, you know. Isn't that what they say on TV? Be secure, buy gold. Well, my point is, that's, that's how this gets interpreted in that scheme. So I want you to see how people approach it differently. Let's keep going through these seals. Then the lamb opened the third seals, and I heard a living creature say, Come, and I looked. In front of me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Simple answer to this, famine is happening. Those prices at that time are ridiculous. In other words, you should be able to buy 10 times that much. So there's clearly famine happening, food shortages. And so if you're a historicist, you're going to see this as the times in the Roman Empire that followed those civil wars, remember, historicists, moving right through history, when there was huge taxation and big economic problems, runaway inflation in the Roman Empire. They're going to say, famine. Futurists are going to say, hey, the Russians and their Arab allies just started a war. And so war always has famine associated with it. In other words, they're going to be people then, after this prolonged war, people start to starve. So you can see, again, a very sequential pattern. So you have war, 
famine that goes with it. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. The Greek word for that means a horse that looked like a corpse, just pale, completely pale. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague, disease, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So this fourth horse, from a historicist point of view, is the death uh, by war and famine and plague that resulted in the Roman Empire back in the third century in history. Futurists are going to say that basically this is war, famine, disease that happens in this war that the Russians and their Arab allies are having with Israel as they begin to bring in more and more countries get into this battle. That's the futurist view, that this is going to play itself out in kind of a geopolitical reality. So let me stop and summarize the four horsemen just a little bit. These four horsemen, basically from a futurist point of view, what you just saw, and I did it really quickly so I don't think it sank in, but we just killed a fourth of the human population. In other words, 1.5 billion people are going to die as a result of this war that is going to happen against Israel if you're a futurist. So this is going to be cataclysmic war and famine and disease, and it's just going to begin to get very dark in the world because of chemical weapons, biological weapons. Futurists say that's what's being described here. That's what these four horses are talking about, is you're going to see a war and you're going to see sarin gas and chlorine gas and uh, plagues being unleashed. In other words, this is really, really brutal and bad war, a war of extermination. Symbolic view is going to say, wait a minute, you've got four horsemen, all this stuff is happening on the earth. What is happening is just like God said, he is going to judge the world. He's going to judge the unbelievers, and these trials are going to refine the faith of the believers. Now, if you're a futurist, Remember, if you believe in the rapture, the church is gone. Believers are gone. This is happening to people now who are not believers. If you don't believe in the rapture, even Christians are going to go through this, and God is going to refine their faith as they go through it. And you'll see something interesting happen here in just a minute. But let me show you how consistent this is uh, briefly. Here's Jesus in Matthew 24 saying the same thing. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famine and earthquakes. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. And then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Well, it's happening at that time. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's saying, if my believers can come through these these persecutions, you, your faith is refined and you will be saved. And that's not just true of these events, whether you think they're in the past or the future. That's what Jesus says to you and me. We too are in times of trial. And God says, if you will let me, I can refine your faith in these trials. These trials aren't happening because I don't love you. These trials are happening because I love you enough to make you holy and blameless for heaven. Uh, Book of Romans Definitely a strong judgment theme. This goes against our culture. Our culture, Christian culture, likes to think of Jesus as love everybody, but Jesus himself speaks really more than most other subjects about judgment. He said, I came to save the world, but I will come to judge the world. Look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is what is playing out. This is Christ coming to judge the world. He said, further, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, strife, murder, deceit, malice, and go on and on. And that's what you see being played out here. He said, Christ let people go their own way, and this is what happens when people go their own way. That makes sense? And this revelation, opening these seals, you see the beginning of God's judgment on these people. 
I'm hesitant to even go back to 1 Thessalonians, but I'm going to. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That's another thing you'll see in the book of Revelation is if you're a futurist, all of this bad stuff, it's going to happen in seven years. You're like, wait, could this really happen in seven years? Well, yeah. In fact, that becomes more and more believable as you look at our current times. Things are moving with unbelievable rapidity in our culture. But it's talking about the idea of lulling you into a sense of peace and safety. Think about Hitler lulling Europe into, you know, just lulling Europe with promises that he never intended to keep. And then in an incredibly short period of time, he literally conquers Europe. Uh, think about in our time, the rise of Iran as a nuclear power. North Korea goes from being not ever on the newspaper pages and six months later is one of the great threats to uh, America and other parts of the world as well. My point is, is that you do see the Bible saying, you don't think these things can happen quickly, but they will. They're going to happen very quickly. And then finally, I'll give you a quote from a, a guy, Bruce Metzger. This is, this is a great comment on the four horsemen, on the first four seals. He said, the four horsemen are brilliant little vignettes, brilliant little pictures of God's judgments working out in history. Basically, this is what happens in the sphere of politics when men and women oppose the will of God. And this is what happens in the military sphere, and this is what happens in economics. There are few chapters in Revelation that speak more directly to our time than this part of chapter 6. So basically what's happening, God's judgment begins to be played out, whether you think that's seven years in the future, whether you think it's Russia and their Arab allies, or you think that this is man's inhumanity to man. In other words, Christians think the world's going somewhere, and frankly, don't believe that it's going somewhere good on our own. Secular humanists believe we can make the world a better place. And there is certainly some truth to that. In certain times and certain places, we can do good things and make the world a little better. But as a teleological idea, uh, where the world is going, how this thing moves to the end, secular humanists think we're going to get better and better. Hey, pick up a newspaper. That is historically untrue. I mean, it's historically completely untenable. The Christian view is that big picture... As long as we keep turning away from God, we will keep goofing up this world. And so what Metzger is saying is, when you see this judgment happening, this is judgment that unbelieving humanity brought upon itself. And that is the message of the Bible. Without God, we have no hope whatsoever. Make sense? Okay. After the four, you're typically going to see uh, a little bit of a break and then something different happens. This is really interesting. Look at this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Now we're back in heaven. We did the first four on earth. They affect the earth, the, four the number of created things. Now the next go back to the scene in heaven. Underneath, he looks and he sees underneath the altar, he said, I saw the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They're called martyrs. Polycarp was a martyr. What does martyr mean? Our word martyr means someone who is killed because of preaching the gospel for saying, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, and I will not say that Caesar is Lord. They're a martyr. That comes directly from a Greek word. The Greek word martyr means testimony. Basically, witness. It's, it's the technical word for a witness in a trial. In other words, we are all witnesses. It's like, I'm going to have to give you my testimony, meaning I've got to tell you what I know to be true. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what he's seeing are all the souls, all of the, all of the souls who have been killed for what they believe under the altar. And they're crying out to God, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. In other words, justice. When will you do justice? Then each of them was given a white robe. What's up? Clothing. Character. Righteousness. Notice they didn't have a white robe like they earned a white robe. They were given that. Jesus Christ made it possible for us to be righteous, not our deeds. And so you'll always see people being given these white robes. In other words, God said, you've been faithful and true. 
you are just, you are righteous before me. So he gives them a white robe, told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed was completed. In other words, here's the eerie thing about this. Satan thinks he's, he's pulling the strings here. He's like, I got my Antichrist going. I got my Russians and Arabs, if you're a futurist, making war on Israel. I got my plan working out. And God says, when my plan is finished, this will all come around. And again, you see Revelation emphasizing to you, and in, our, in your and my personal life, this is good news, because it seems like somebody evil in this world is pulling the strings. Usually your boss, I understand that. But it's, it's pulling the strings. But in reality, God is sovereign. God is working in all things. Romans 8, 28, he's working in all things for good, whether we see it in the moment or not. So that's what this vision is talking about. So who are these souls? Pretty easy to see. You're going to figure this out. If it's a historicist view, these are the people, Christians, who were killed by the Roman Empire. And so we're just marching through history, right? So we got all these bad emperors, and they do wars, and they do famine, and now here are all the Christians who were killed by the Roman Empire. Futurists, kind of interesting if you're a futurist and you think this is happening uh, in the future because the church is gone, right? You're a futurist, most futurists, think the church got raptured out in chapter 4. Here we are in chapter 6. Who are these people? They're going to say those are people who, during the tribulation, became Christian and were killed for becoming Christians. Then there's one other little branch of futures, and I want to talk about them later, but dispensational futures. It's an it's a important but a little bit different branch of futures. The interesting thing here is dispensational futures think this is the middle of the seven years. This is the middle of the tribulation, okay? So we're three and a half years into this bad stuff. And here's the interesting thing. The next three and a half years they call the great tribulation. This is just the warm-up act, all right, for what's going to happen. <clears throat> so that's who these uh, souls are. Then sixth seal. <clears throat> I watched as they opened the sixth seal. There's a great earthquake. Now listen to this. this. Listen to this. This is really interesting. The sun turned black like sackcloth. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth, just like figs dropping from a fig tree. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then, count these, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, and free man. In other words, seven categories. Everybody on earth, when this starts to happen, hid in caves and among the rocks. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath, the judgment of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so you see this huge scene of judgment. What did that sound like? I don't know about you, but that sounds like the end of the world to me. If you see a symbolic view, what you think has just happened as we've opened these six seals is, we just described the story of the end of the world. There's going to be wars, famine, just like Jesus said, right? Wars, famine, plagues, and then the earth is going to be destroyed and everybody is going to face the judgment of God. Symbolic view says, you just heard God describe how the world's going to end. And when we open the seven trumpets, guess what's going to happen? He's going to do the same thing again. And the seven bowls, he's going to do the same thing again. If you're a futurist, however, you're seeing these things play out one thing after another. So a futurist says, oh, I know what that's describing, nuclear war. So you've got Russia and its Arab allies attacking Israel. We're using chemical weapons, we're using biological weapons, and then finally somebody pops a nuclear weapon and boom, it goes off. And what the sixth seal describes from a futurist point of view is a nuclear winter. In other words, the sky goes dark, the moon goes red, uh, it's you know, earthquakes, horrible thing. Earth is just being destroyed by nuclear weapons. And so that's, if you're a futurist, you're seeing these things happen sequentially, and that's what's happening in that case. Symbolic, you see the second coming. You see basically this is the story of the end of the world. 
When you finish those six seals, and this is going to happen in every single one of these, there's going to be a little pause, and we're going to talk about something else for a moment. But this pause turns out to be the great lesson in chapter 6 and 7. Look at this. After that sixth seal was opened up, as if that wasn't bad enough, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Why four? We're talking about creation. Four angels, four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or sea, etc. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees. Don't do anything else until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of the servants who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, that's just really interesting. Who's getting sealed and what is the seal? Well, depending on your point of view as to who's getting sealed, if you are a, uh, first of all, the number. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. So 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, right? God's people. There were 12 sons of Israel, became the 12 tribes of Israel, became the Jews. So that's representative of God's people. 12 apostles represents Christians, the church. Multiply them together, and what he's basically saying is all of God's people through all of time. Throw in 1,000 in there just to put an exclamation point on the end of it. 144,000, very symbolic number, basically of God's people. The question is, who are these God's people? Well, a historicist or a symbolic view will say, these are faithful Christians throughout all of time. This is just a way of talking about them. God seals every single believer. Futurist, you, this, is, this all has to be happening in the seven-year time period. You got no Christians. They've been raptured. There are going to be one, literally 144,000 people who come to Christ during the tribulation. And if you're a dispensational futurist, one of the key things of that particular flavor of futurists, the Jews figure heavily into that. Dispensational futurists, I'm talking about like Left Behind series now, if you've ever read that, says this is 144,000 Jewish evangelists. In other words, these are Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. There'll be literally 144,000 of them, and they are going to go out preaching Christ during the seven-year period because all the Christians are gone. The church is gone at that time. So depending on your view, everybody, though, at least agrees these are God's people. The sealing idea, this idea of a seal is really interesting. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. What is the seal? The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What that says is when you were transformed from death to life, when you believe God put the Holy Spirit in you, and he said, that's my down payment, that I can bring you through faithfully to the end, and you will live forever with me, and that's my down payment. That's called the seal, God's seal. In a great way, I've told, I think I've told you this story before, but it's so illustrative to me. When our kids were little, one of the things, uh, we have sons, three boys, one of the things we like to do is play hide and seek. And so I would basically, at the end of a long day, tell them to go hide, and I would come find them. And so after I read the paper, I would go find them, you know, and just, you know, I didn't say I'd come right away, you know, so, but it kept them occupied. So they would go hide, I would come to find them. Well, my oldest son had these, uh, he was fearless. He was hard to find because he wasn't afraid of the dark. He'd go into the farthest reaches of the farthest closet into the dark where I was, frankly, myself, just a little, you know, is there something in here? You know, when I would go in, he was fearless, but his favorite pajamas were these little rocket ship and planet kind of pajamas, and they were glow-in-the-dark. You know how the little planets and all, they had the glow-in-the-dark stuff? And so no matter how dark it was, he thought he was hidden. I mean, but 
to me, he just stood out. I mean, I could find him all the time because as soon as I saw him, he glowed. I mean, he's got a little glow in the dark over there. That's how I want you to think about this verse. When God looks at a dark world, and this is a very dark world in Revelation, and frankly, you and my world can seem very, very dark and very, very oppressive at times. But I want you to take this vision and I want you to realize that's what you look like to God. No matter how dark the world is, he sees you because you glow in the dark because you have his spirit inside of you. He can never lose track of you. He can never forget you. He can never not know where you are. That's why Christians say this, and it's true. You can never go someplace so low. You can never be someplace so dark that God doesn't know your name, that God can't find you there. That's because the Holy Spirit, you literally glow in the dark. And what's really powerful about this is in the midst of all this war, in the midst of this, if your future's nuclear war and all this, God says, just a moment. Nothing else happens until I seal my people. One by one, individually, I know who you are. No matter how dark this is, don't you ever think that I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're going through. To me, this little interlude, if you will, after the sixth seal is just one of the most powerful pictures of God's love. Both then, in the time of persecution, in the future, in the tribulation, or for you and me right now. Well, I imagine we have a question or two about the seals. What have you got? Um, what do you think about the idea that Christ was the rider of the white horse? Christ was the rider of the white horse. Yes, I'm going to give you a quick view on that. That is, a, that is another interpretation of the seals. I don't find it persuasive in the sense that it, it basically, well, let me put it this way. If you think of this as God's judgment, that would not be a bad way of understanding it, is that Christ himself is coming to conquer the world with the gospel. However, most of the views, certainly the futurist view, definitely the historicist view, don't favor that interpretation. They actually favor more of the forces and the events that are happening through people here on earth. It's not an unreasonable point of view. Uh, you, you can understand it that way. Does every generation of futurists think, wow, this must be it? World War I, World War II... Yeah, great question. See, this is where futurists and symbolic have just fun arguments. Futurists say, hey, it's getting close, it's getting close. Symbolic goes, heard that before. <laughs> Hitler, Tilla the Hun, Diocletian, Romans, Babylon, heard it many times before. But you, that encapsulates the idea. I mean, that really is true. And I'm not saying one is right or the other is wrong. They may both be right, they may both be wrong. But it is two different points, a little bit points of view. But futurists, and most people statistically are futurists, so I realize that I'm just going to send, you know, 90% of this audience won't come back. But futurists, bless your little hearts, you sometimes get a little bit, I would say you, could be me too. I'll let you know when we get to the end. But maybe get a little obsessed with kind of knowing, you know, when is it going to happen? Okay, wait, Iran's got a nuclear weapon. Hey, they just made a uh, deal with Russia. Ooh, the Arabs, they're getting feisty. And so this is going to happen and I can see it happening. It's not that that's inherently a bad thing to do, but I, I would hope that never becomes the center of our theology, you know, is worrying about the end times. I'm going to tell you about this and I know you're all going to go Google it and I'm going to feel guilty for having driven you to this, but there's even a rapture index on the web that say, and I'm not trying to make fun of it, I'm just saying this is, this is really serious trying to, and the rapture index gives you a number based on how stable the world is as to how close we are to the tribulation. Since they're futurists, they think, well, at the beginning is the rapture. So it can be unhealthy, but yes, futurists are always looking for, okay, who is the antichrist and boy, aren't we getting close. And I have to admit, if I pick up the paper in the morning, I look at it and I go, Whoa, man, that's a lot like the book of Revelation. We must be getting close. But Christians have thought that before. Good question. Do certain denominations of Christianity ascribe to one or more of these belief systems? Do certain denominations uh, prefer one or more of these? Yes, 
generally, I mean, it's hard to judge every single individual. I hope you'll read the Bible and reason together. These are all reasonable points of view. They're all faithful points of view. I'm not saying they're all right, but I'm just saying they're all faithful to God. So I'm comfortable, you know, with whatever of these particular views that you hold. But yes, certain denominations tend to favor certain things. And I don't think I can tell you everything, but I will tell you this. For example, if you're Baptist, I'm I'm painting with a broad brush here, guys. So a little grace on this. By and large, you're a futurist. And by and large, you're a pre-tribulation rapture futurist, and you're counting the days, okay? And so, yes there are certain denominations tend to favor one view or another. Unfortunately, the symbolic view has traditionally been held by more liberal denominations. And I think that's a little unfair, though, because if you take it symbolically, you don't actually have to think it's, quote, true. But what I'm telling you when I talk about the symbolic view, I'm talking about people who believe this is absolutely true, it's really going to happen. They just simply think it's true more than once. Let me put it that way. So yes, they do, but I can't tell you all of them. So whatever your denomination is, ask your pastor. So which one of the four major views of Revelation do you hold to? And uh, they'll probably ask you to visit another church next week. (laughs) And so which one does this church hold to? Which one does this church? Well, you know, our time is really getting away from us here. Crossings Community Church. It's affiliated with Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. And so I will tell you, they're, they're actually, when we get to chapter 20, help me remember, the Church of God, Anderson, has a very specific view of chapter 20. But not this. These, these four approaches. And crossings, let me speak now about Crossings Community Church. Crossings Community Church kind of holds the idea that we need unity in the essentials of the faith that we might reasonably disagree about things that are not essential to our faith or our salvation. This is considered one of those things, that whichever one of these four views you hold is not essential to your salvation. There are things that are, but while we might disagree and we might have some fun arguments, but that in everything we would love one another on these non-essential issues. We should love one another, disagree, shake hands and say, brother and sister in Christ. So this church understands this issue in that way. And so I know some of you are going, I won't have to leave the church now. But basically, this is considered not an issue over which we would divide. Uh, Chapter 20 is not an issue over which we would divide, but Church of God Anderson has a specific point of view. I'll tell you about that when we get to it. So, Who are the elders mentioned in chapter 7? Excuse me, who are the elders... Mentioned in chapter 7, that is a referral back. If you remember in our last lesson, we met these 24 elders. And so that's referring. So you're going to have these four living creatures around the throne. Remember, they represented all of creation. They had different faces. We had 24 elders. And I just would refer you to the last lesson. We talked about who those elders might be. But every time you see the elders speaking, we're talking about those people around the throne of God that we met in chapter 4. Good question. How do the visions and the prophecies in Daniel tie in with Revelation? How do the visions and prophecies in Daniel tie into Revelation? Intimately, heavily, and frequently tie in. I am, just because of time, not making all these connections, but since you asked, if you're jotting down notes, Daniel chapter 7, very connected to the four horsemen. And there you have four Kingdoms, if you will, you get division in two different flavors, but Daniel chapter 7 talks about God's plan and how you're going to see these four oppressive kingdoms, and then Christ is going to come and he's going to effectively judge them. And so Daniel 7, very related to this. Zechariah, you're going, really? That's in the Bible? Yeah. Zechariah chapter 6 has horses that are different colors. It's not exactly the same as this vision, but it also is talking about four different kinds of uh, basically oppressive uh, kingdoms that God is going to judge. So book of Zechariah, book of Daniel, very much connected to this vision, meaning this vision is recalling all of those images from that time. So they are very connected. I'll try to point it out when I can. Just time doesn't permit us to go into some of the really interesting little details. I want you just to see the the big picture 
But that's a great question. Very, very connected to the book of Revelation. In fact, entire Hebrew scriptures, the entire Old Testament is woven into these visions. The way God starts and the way God ends, very, very seamless. A couple of questions about Polycarp. Where can you read about him? Where can you read the story of Polycarp? Because I just gave you the excerpts. Polycarp, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp is the name of the document. The martyrdom of Polycarp. It's part of what's called the Apostolic Fathers. So if you want to Google that or buy a book, it's it basically it's writings of apostolic fathers. This is the generation of church leaders right after the original apostles. So John dies, and who are the leaders after him? People like Clement, people like Polycarp. Well, they also wrote letters to the churches to encourage them. Are they inspired by God? No. But are they good letters? Yeah. They'd be like you and I might write to encourage a missionary overseas. So those group of people are called the Apostolic Fathers. So any collection of Apostolic Fathers will have the martyrdom of Polycarp. Why does he look like he's Catholic in your picture? Why does he look Catholic in, in my picture? That is actually an Orthodox picture and a little church history, which by the way, that would be a fascinating series. We ought to talk about that sometime. But basically, in that time, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are the same, and everybody looked Catholic then. It's just an early picture. Uh, way, way, way before Martin Luther and the Protestants changed the whole look. So he looks that way because he is an Orthodox icon. That's the picture that I chose. What do you think of the Left Behind series? What do I think of the Left Behind series? The Left Behind series has brilliantly, brilliantly influenced a lot of people to believe in the dispensational futurist view of the book of Revelation. I think it's brilliant. Uh, if, you, if you don't like the dispensational view of, of Revelation, you think it's dastardly. But if you do, it's brilliant. So basically, it was a great way to popularize a specific way of understanding the book of Revelation. As you can tell, that's not the way I like to teach it. Uh, because I do want you to engage the scripture and think about this a little bit, but it did encode in fiction pretty accurately a dispensational future, and I'll tell you more what I mean by that as we move on, of the book of Revelation. So it, it was well done for what it did. Well, let me kind of wrap up with uh, kind of a lesson out of this, and we've already talked about it a little bit. I want to make two points, mainly from this interlude. Right now you see God stopping and he's going to put his seal, his Holy Spirit, in the middle of this nuclear war, in the middle of this cataclysm, whatever you think's going on, whether it's in the middle of persecution by the Roman emperors or it's in the middle of a Russian nuclear war in the future, whatever you think about it, here's the bottom line that everybody agrees with. God stops what's going on to place his Holy Spirit on his faithful believers. Later you're going to see Satan in the form of the Antichrist mark all of his people as well. And here's two lessons. First, everybody bears the mark. There's no middle ground. You're either, in this story, in the book of Revelation, you're going to bear the seal of God, the Holy Spirit, for those who are faithful, or you are going to bear the mark of the beast, which can't wait till we get to that. So you are going to bear somebody's mark. And in fact, you do in this world. Everybody bears one mark. Remember what Jesus said? You can't serve two gods. You're going to serve one or the other but there's no middle ground. Like, well, I haven't made up my mind yet. I might vote for you, I might vote for you. You know, I says, no, one or the other. And then the second lesson is this, is just that God in the middle of this plan takes time, stops history to locate us. And I want you to think about that in your life. I want you to think about when you're in the middle of your own personal tribulation. Okay, I'm gonna make this a little metaphorical. Forget the end of the world now. Think about the things that challenge your faith. Think about the things, the temptations, the setbacks, the trials, the things that don't go your way, the broken, hurting relationship, the things that happen to us that are part of life that Jesus said, in this world you're gonna have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome this world. He, what's he saying? He said, trust me. I will see you through this. I know where you are. You glow in the dark. I want you to hold on to that idea. I want you to hold on to this part of Revelation to know that your God is faithful. What Revelation is really saying is no matter how hard things are, let me show you what's really happening. God really is sovereign, and God knows who you are. 
He knows exactly what you're going through. So I want you to be encouraged by this. And so our chapter 7 ends with these interesting words. Listen to this. Talking about God's people. Never again will they hunger, although they were certainly hungry in the tribulation, and you and I have been too in many ways. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Do you hear the 23rd Psalm in this? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You and I will cry some tears. You and I will go through some hard times. But the end of the story of the seals is simply this, that in the end, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And I hope that's encouraging because I think that's why God revealed this to us. What happens next? Oh, seven trumpets. And if just when you thought things couldn't get worse, things get much worse. So enjoy your current tribulation. We start the great tribulation next week. Thanks, you guys. <laughs>